What a blessedness it is to come together on Sunday morning to appreciate the first day of the week and, of course, the blessings that have been ours this past week and those to which we can look forward this week because of the goodness of God. Aren't we reminded in James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable is neither shadow of turning. Today it is certainly a blessing then that we can come together and for this period of time to devote ourselves in worship to the God of heaven. As you can see, the title of the lesson today is one that involves two portions or parts, and we'll develop them in turn. The lesson text that was just read a moment ago is a text that, in fact, I hope you'll be turning to in your Bible, 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22, and we will devote some decent, at least some considered attention to that set of verses here in just a few moments. I begin this introductory slide by reminding us that salvation is in many ways a blessing so grand and great that it is difficult to find the adequate words to describe it. In Matthew 19, 16, So great was it that that rich young ruler came to the Master and said, What good thing must I do that I might eternal life? In Acts 16, verse number 30, There it was that Philippian jailer who said, What must I do to be saved? In Acts 2, 38, Those on Pentecost cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? All of those questions remind us that here were individuals who had reached a point of understanding that to be lost is, is tragic, it's sad, it's awful. But to be saved is truly a great thing that God offers to us. To be lost is really bad, isn't it? In fact, you and I have appreciated through the Word of God that that's tragic and it's so sad. And yet Jesus said, unfortunately, that there are many who are in that condition. That text is so familiar in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, when He said, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And the Lord said, Many are on that roadway, many are traveling it. But how delightful it is to hear Him go on to say, Straight the gate, narrow the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. So it is possible to find it. It is possible to enjoy it, to be blessed with it, and you and I look forward in eternity to appreciating having found that narrow pathway. But the closing thought on that slide is this one. As bad as it is to be lost, do you know there's actually something worse? There's actually something more tragic. And that'll be part of our study, a part of our lesson today. I mentioned earlier about that text in 2 Peter chapter 2. But you'll notice there was one other thing that actually began that lesson title, and it was the word apostasy. It might well be that that word's rather unfamiliar to us in some ways, because quite frankly, though we may hear it sometimes in religious circles, it is a word that does not occur in the English translation of the Bible. Now, partly that would come from the fact the word wasn't coined until the 14th century, so there was no word like that, you see, back what we would consider earlier, but the fact the word doesn't occur in, in at least the King James Bible doesn't change the fact the thought is certainly there. The teaching is certainly there. The record of some who chose that pathway is there. So why don't we at least devote some time this morning to defining it as we begin our lesson and then reflect more carefully upon it. The Oxford Dictionary defines apostasy in the way that I've asked you to know. That abandonment, the renunciation if you please, of a particular religious or political belief. Uh, 
And again, what that means is that someone who at one time supported, someone who at one time endorsed, and in fact was fully involved in, reaches a point in life when that person chooses not to support it, chooses not to be involved in it, in fact chooses to oppose it. And that kind of idea is one that certainly we're not going to discuss that today in a political way. That's not our interest. Our interest is more from what the Word of God has to say. The question might then be asked. We know that there are some, for instance, in our world who would say this is an impossibility. You've heard the phrase as well as I. Once you're saved, some would say you're always saved. And yet, the whole idea of apostasy would in fact fly in the face of that thought. Because remember, it says someone who chooses, though wants to have endorsed and accepted it, to now have turned aside from it. Apostasy, can it happen? Is it something the Bible teaches? Is it something that should be a matter of concern? And if so, what should be done after that? Well, in the text before us, you heard Brother Cale read a moment ago from the closing verses of 2 Peter 2, and we'll return to those verses and perhaps step through them somewhat slowly and at least give some consideration to what we read in that inspired set of verses. First of all, in verse 18, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, it's always helpful if possible to clearly identify who the pronouns refer to. The they, that is, the third word in that verse, refers to the false teachers that Peter had been discussing in the earlier verses of this chapter. So when these false teachers speak great swelling words of vanity, it says they, that's again those false teachers, allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Now, some of the principal conclusions that I would invite us to note would be the language that the inspired writer uses as a part of that wonderful verse. Did you notice he makes reference to those who live in error? May we pay careful attention. It is possible to be living in error. It is possible to be conducting oneself, to be behaving in such a way that you are living in a constant state of error in the sight of God. As Peter makes that observation here, again he says, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. The next thing that I would invite you to note with me, although it's true that there are those who choose to live in error, and I've asked you to observe a number of passages wherein the concept was at least set before us. We might well begin in 2 Samuel 6. There, don't we remember that Uzzah was such that the text says... He lost his life because of the error of touching that ark, of course, when he was unauthorized to do so. But the word error is utilized to describe what he did. Furthermore, in that interesting passage of Romans 1.27, you recall in description of homosexuality, they'll receive the just recompense of the error, which was meat. There's the word again. So here's a description of some who are choosing to live in a way And it was there said that they would receive the just reward or recompense of the error in which they were involved. In the third place, James 5.20, the closing two verses of that chapter, the inspired writer pointed out that if, brethren, if one of you do err from the truth... Now notice also, here was one who had known the truth, but chose to err from it. 
He said that that one who is in fact instrumental in bringing back that one has saved a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. But our word again has occurred in an easy to understand way. Maybe the last two in Jude 11, you remember the error of Balaam, the inspired writer referring to it. So we remember what Balaam had done in Numbers chapter 22. Wasn't it true that there it's described as error? Finally, in 2 Peter 3.17, the error that was, of course, a part of the writing of Peter, and that's, of course, just one chapter forward from the chapter in which we are. Isn't it true there it's described as the error of the wicked? So all of that perhaps is a quick reminder that it is entirely possible, as verse 18 would tell us, to live in error, to be overwhelmed in it and to give oneself over to it. But did you notice the other part of that same verse? There were those who had escaped it. Don't you love that word? We know what it means to escape. One who is initially overcome by and in fact inundated with, then escapes it. That means you've become free from it. You are no longer affiliated or associated with it. And Peter could say those that were clean escaped. I would point out, just as Peter so quickly did, that it is possible thus to escape this life of error. In Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, we have in essence a description of what's involved in making that determination. And isn't it an interesting one? Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, or whether of obedience unto righteousness. Now verse 17 but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Thus the inspired writer Paul pointed out these two possibilities. There is obedience unto righteousness, and how wonderful and lovely that is. But there's also the other possibility. There's the sin and the life that goes with it. Peter pointed out to the Romans, they had made the choice. You once were servants of sin, but you aren't now. They had left that behind as they obeyed the gospel. And in that condition, they now had been made free from sin. They didn't have to answer for its guilt anymore. That had been forgiven, and isn't that wonderful? And certainly any Christian delights every day in the thought of the deliverance we've enjoyed from the shackles of sin. But now... After finishing that 18th verse, what about verse 19? Peter wasn't finished. He went on to say, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. So please take note, these false teachers, they talked a good message and perhaps talked about things that were certainly of intrigue and interest. They talked about freedom. Notice Paul, Peter's usage of the word liberty. But the inspired writer said, they really are the slaves to corruption. What they're telling you isn't the way that it is. And they themselves are living a life that is not that which it ought to be. So they're not saying to you that which is the truthful things from God. Because the closing part of verse 19 then quickly says, Of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. So though they speak about liberty and freedom, you see, they are living in such a way that they themselves are the servants to corruption. And certainly what they say would encourage that 
in the considerations of others, wouldn't it? Now, all of that prepares us for the continuing explanation of verse 20. So having a bit of a foundation laid, now Peter says, note the first word of verse 20 is for. It's an explanatory word. Here is his elaboration of the thoughts he had previously expressed. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, doesn't that highlight that our appreciation earlier was the correct one? Namely, it's possible to escape the corruptions and pollutions of this world. We noted that it's done by obedience to the Lord and the obedience to the gospel and the appreciation of the freedom which it does present. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world... Now, if they had escaped those pollutions, they were saved. They had arrived at a point of being in harmony with the teachings of the God of heaven. The sins had been forgiven in their lives, and they were then in a position of safety, of lovely association with the God of heaven. If after they've escaped those pollutions through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein. Now note the description that the inspired writer provides for us. They had escaped, the text says that, meaning that they had enjoyed a freedom, a liberty from the ensnaring character of the world and that which was of the devil. But now sadly and tragically, they are again entangled therein. The word entangled brings to our mind the thought of someone who, maybe we've experienced it, you're trying to take care of a ball of yarn or another type of string, and again, it gets wound around your fingers. You get entangled in it. Peter describes that circumstance in light of these people. They were once escaped. They had once been made free from sin, but they now are entangled again. But not only that, it says they're overcome. So it's not that they, in fact, have unfortunately messed somewhat with it. They have been overcome by it. They have found themselves, by their choice, in a position that they are engulfed again, covered with, if you please, the nature of that life of sinful character. I've asked you to notice on that slide that the escape that was presented to them earlier is now what they had forfeited. Romans 1.16 would remind us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And they initially had given such great interest and consideration to that, but now the fact they've been overcome by these polluting matters, by these corrupting matters, means they had turned their back upon the nature of, of that saving message of the gospel they had once so lovingly known. It's true then as the verse closes, Peter now makes this statement, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now they were lost before. Remember, before they had obeyed the gospel through the knowledge of the Lord, just as was true of any of us, were lost without the Master. And now after having known it and then turned aside from it, the latter end is worse with them than it had been at the first. That's somewhat of a shocking statement, isn't it? Doesn't it remind us that as that description is put before us, Peter, of course, was reminded about those false teachers of whom we had spoken before, but also the influence they were able to have over others who would be those that might follow that which they taught. 
in any way that we come to turn our back upon the truth, to fall aside from it, willfully choosing then to not do that which we once had appreciated, we find ourselves in the statement of the latter part of this chapter. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, you'll notice verses 16 and 17, the highlighted statement of the joy of Christianity and the blessedness of the name Christian and what a privilege it is to wear that name. But then it quickly transitions to verse number 17. If judgment first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So those who had known that gospel and then to deliberately choose no longer to follow it, the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. Now in light of those comments, the last two verses, verses 21 and 22, now take us to this. Verse 21 again begins with the word for. He continues his explanation. Now it says, "...it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness." Then after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So these who you see had come to know that holy commandment and then to turn away from it, to reject the blessedness of what is involved in it, to in essence look at Christ on the cross and say, I have no interest in it anymore. Peter writes to them and says, it would be better not to ever have known the way of truth, the way of righteousness, than to know it and then to willfully turn from it. Peter's words are very strong, aren't they? And they should shake all of us up and remind us as Christians never to allow ourselves under the temptation of the devil to choose to begin to look upon our Christianity as a trivial or ritualistic thing and never allow ourselves in weakness to deny it and to turn aside from it. Because those who do so are described in the verses before us today. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. So in light of what he's just stated, these who again were entangled and overcome, they have now reached a point where they again are in pollution and corruption and they're lost, but the state now is worse than it had been before. It is possible for things to be worse than just being lost. This is the worst it could possibly be. And in light of that, one last verse might be to reflect, didn't Jesus teach something like this in Luke 12? In the closing verses to that chapter, the Master Himself, as He gave that description of the judgment, He said, "...there shall be some beaten with few stripes." those who in fact in ignorance had done what they did. But he said, there shall be some beaten with many stripes. Theirs was not in ignorance. The Lord said that. They knew exactly what the Master had said and they chose to do otherwise. And Jesus said, theirs shall involve many stripes. You see, Jesus even had then some things to say to those of His own day. And then Peter, in the text before us, invites our close attention as you close verse number 21, all that's left is the last verse in the chapter. But of course, it's that well-known, vivid portrait of all this situation. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb. So Peter now makes observation. Here's a proverb well-known apparently to those of that day. It would seem part of it's a quotation of certain aspects of the Old Testament. 
But at the very least, we can at least imagine this. The dog is turned to its own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And we can so readily picture it, can't we? Here's a dog who has eaten something, regurgitates it, vomits it if you please, and then returns to eat it again. That's disgusting to us. It is a picture, a portrait of very distastefulness. But not only that, this sow, this hog, if you will. And the time has been invested to wash, to clean. And then the first place that that pig would like to go in many instances is right back to the closest mud hole. And so the cleanliness that was once known and the freedom from dirt and mire that was once appreciated is completely and thoroughly given up as the sow goes back to, to wallowing in the mire. As all of that's described, he isn't, of course, just talking about animals. He's using it to describe the situation of us. You see, doesn't that paint for us how shameful that God looks upon sin, how ugly it is, how distasteful it is? Maybe Jeremiah in the Old Testament came the closest to giving us a picture like that. In Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So God there declared through Jeremiah that sin is shameful, it's putrid, it's tragic, it's awful, it's ugly. The best adjectives you and I can think of to describe just how awful it is. May we always remember that pig and that dog in 2 Peter 2.22 as a reminder that sin isn't pretty. I know the devil wants us to think it is. That it's enticing, it's alluring, it's inviting, it's fun. And no doubt for a little while it might be. For after all, the Bible discusses the pleasures of sin in Hebrews 11.25. But notice that its real nature is what's before us. Because at some point you have to pay the piper. At some point the answer has to be given for the choices that one has made. And we see here that it is not a very delightful thing to consider, is it? Is it seeing a sickening thing to the Lord? Revelation 3.14 maybe paints it the plainest when there was a congregation of the Lord's people at Laodicea. And Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, one or the other, but you make me sick. I could vomit you out of my mouth. You just make me sick, the sins in which you're involved. So isn't it true that the nature of this apostasy is very real? Here were people that had clean escaped, were again overcome, and the latter end was worse than the beginning. It might well be in light of all of that that it brings us to the second part of the lesson, the last resort. Our heart breaks as we contemplate those in this situation. The choice they've made, the kind of situation in which they are, and quite frankly, we hurt for them. And yet, what does the Bible allow us to say in further consideration about this? Isn't it true the single greatest story ever told is the story of human redemption? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Matthew 1.21, the very name Jesus brings that thought to mind. Wasn't it true the angel told Joseph, Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The message of salvation is through him. 
It centers on Him. It is developed fully based upon Him. And yet, as we've just learned this morning so far, there are those who can come to appreciate and know it, but then deliberately turn from it. That kind of sadness and that kind of tragedy shall be, of course, not only the focus of what has come before, but what we will consider in the remainder of this lesson. First of all, should we appreciate the following? It's not without hope. For after all, they might come to their senses. They might appreciate a moment wherein the message of what they once had loved again reinvigorates their heart. On the slide, could I invite you to note the words, and we'll just read them directly this time. James chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him... So note, conversion is still possible if one errs from the truth. Then verse 20 so lovingly says, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. And thus, all our interest is, is to develop more carefully what are some means whereby one might approach those in the circumstance we've described so far. Those who have chosen in tragedy to reject the Lord, to forfeit what they once had known. As you and I then develop that, notice some things the Word of God would quickly share with us. First of all, may we not ignore the power of prayer. Pray for these people. Earnestly, often, and with intensity, pray for them. Now what do we pray for? Pray that their heart will be tender. Pray that they shall again have the understanding that went with what they once had known. Paul mentioned this in Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. To the church in Ephesus, he urged them, Pray that your eyes of understanding will be opened, and that your heart will be enlightened and that you'll appreciate the state in which you are and the character of what you can again be. Pray again that the, their heart might be tender enough to be reached. It is with that statement that Ephesians 2.12 include as a part of that prayer that they'll recognize they have no hope in their current state. Now that can be a very jarring realization on occasion, but may we at least keep in mind the necessity we realize we can't force anybody to obey the gospel. Even the Lord won't do that. He encourages, He implores, He invites, but He will not force. And we can't either. But we can surely pray that the heart of the person will be tender enough to be open. But in addition to prayer, might we realize that we do have an obligation that goes beyond it. We must never, ever, ever leave this person with the impression that in any way we approve or condone what they currently are in or doing. Now may I say, the influence of the church and the influence of individual Christians is a rather majestic and serious thing. The Bible frequently mentions the concept of fellowship and urges us we must never, ever have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. Now that means, of course, that certainly in a case like this, out of our love for this person, we would never wish to leave an impression with them that we in any way feel as if things are okay 
or that we feel as if we can somehow slide past this issue, for that's not possible. I've asked you to notice that in Romans 1.32, there's a rather strong reminder that we, in essence, can at least have an indirect guilt in regard to this person's activities if we in some way leave them the impression we condone it. And thus, certainly, we should not wish to have that upon ourselves. But in the third place, we with knowledge. After all, we have appreciated the truth, and they did too at one time. But we should then speak with this person. Let them know that we're concerned about them and that the truth displays something different than what they currently are doing. Jesus said it that way in Matthew 18, didn't He? In regard to this oppression or this difficulty that exists, you go to this person and you talk with them. You express to them the nature of the foolishness of the decision they have made. You perhaps bring to their mind the thought of the wonderful state they once were in. But you let them know in a very loving and tactful and kind way that things are not well with their soul in their current state. Now that kind of direction, one would certainly hope that the person will respond with encouragement and respond in an attitude whereby they realize they've been brought to their senses. But in honesty, it might not happen that way. That's the reason Jesus went on and said it like this. Have a witness or two. That is, the person needs to understand it's not just some person's opinion. It's not just some person's perspective. But this is an understood truth. Others also, in light of my way of life, are understanding that the Word of God does not condone this and places a statement of condemnation upon me. Galatians 6 verse 1 would say, Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Is it any wonder that as those statements are made, notice there is thus an intent, there is a consideration. But at this point, the slide transitions to the next one. Again, one would certainly hope that the person, perhaps over time, with a nature of intrigue and interest and consideration for the Word of God, that things might change and repentance could occur. But it might well not. For that reason, Jesus goes forward. Bring that matter now before the church. And you can understand why some additional benefit might come from this. More people can now be praying about it. More people, you see, can address the person and urge them in, in, in truthfulness to think about the situation that they are then in and the decisions that have been made. Certainly with an additional set of forces pressed in that way, you can think of it like this. Should we not now in fairness say, each of us know that there are those closer to us in life, those that are nearer to us, and isn't it true that those are the ones who in all likelihood are going to have the strongest likelihood of impressing upon the one who is now wayward. Because they're the ones who are the nearest, the ones who are looked up to the most, the ones who have the greatest association and opportunity. They are the ones who will have a lovely obligation, perhaps to exert the greatest influence to bring this person back. 
No wonder in that light you now realize this. One can certainly continue in prayer and hope that things will have been different and repentance will take place. And if it does, great rejoicing will take place too. Celebration of marvelous order. But as we all know, each person makes his or her own decision. And so the person might still choose to continue in the way of life that God doesn't approve. And so we reach the last resort. The last thing then that those who love and that which is the church would then be able to do, what is it? Well, the Bible calls it this, withdrawing fellowship. What's involved in that? What goes on with it? How does it take place? Well, in brevity, let's close the lesson, and you can see some of the matters there. First of all, social activities with the person now cease. You can't eat with them. 1 Corinthians 5.11 You can't carry on normal social activities with them. You can't go to the movies with them. You can't watch ball games with them. That kind of thing is now past. Because they need to appreciate that this is serious. And their soul at this time is lost. And so these less important things like eating physical meals, those give way to a more serious issue that you're spiritually sick. And I love you so much that I do not want to encourage in any way as if my eating with you would be a statement I'm in fellowship with you. Maybe it's fair to say that in this instance, those who would withdraw fellowship love the person more than the person loves him or herself. They're continuing to be lost and seemingly proceed along that way, but those who love them enough will actually withdraw fellowship from them. They will be the ones who wish to exert the influence of the Lord by withdrawing the fellowship that once had been so sweetly extended. As you can see on the slide, this is painful. It is one of the least fun things a church will ever do. It isn't pleasant in any way. Because this person that you love is lost. And certainly we enjoy fellowship with anybody if it's just left up to us. But Jesus commands that in this case, this is the last resort. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul said, I command you to withdraw fellowship. This isn't optional. For this child of God who has chosen to go wayward, in love the church then reaches this point. And in the, in the withdrawal of fellowship, you might now make this observation. Fellowship is not withdrawn from somebody because they sin. All of us sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't withdraw from someone because they sin. You withdraw from someone as a wayward child of God because they won't repent. That's the urgent part. That's the serious part. For that reason... The next point on that slide is this. When you withdraw fellowship, there is not hatred. There is not animosity. You don't treat the person like he or she is an enemy. You treat them as a person who has made these decisions. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3.15, you admonish them. You encourage them. You try to bring words to them in such a way that you remind them that 
your love and consideration would wish for them to do differently than what they currently are. You urge them to repent. As all of that is said, one more time, isn't it fair to say that this is what the Bible describes? It was utilized in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That church in Corinth was told, you need to withdraw from this man who's living in fornication. To that point, they had not. And they were in error, the church was, because they hadn't. But then, after Paul's instruction was given, they withdrew fellowship from this man. They did it for two reasons. First, to save his soul. And second, to keep the church pure. The church could not associate, you see, or extend fellowship because in so doing, they were condoning that which this man was living in. And such would certainly be that which would leaven the whole lump. Paul said for two reasons, and you've got to withdraw fellowship. And when they did, it worked. In that instance, it worked. We've got to be quick to say, it might not always work. Because everybody makes his or her own decisions. And everybody, of course, each one of us will answer to God for the decision we made. Aren't we reminded in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 that there is nothing more required of this person who has been the subject of withdrawal. There's nothing more required of him or her then than what was required of them before the withdrawal took place. Repentance and coming back to God. That's it. And when that's done, not only is fellowship with the Lord reestablished, but fellowship with the church is reestablished. And that kind of fellowship, again, and all the sweetness and the disposition that goes with it is rich indeed. As we close this lesson this morning, it's a reminder to each of us, we can slip from the truth. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, "Let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. You or I might reach a point in life, no doubt gradual, but wherein we would then need to be disfellowshipped by the church. And if they love me, they'll do that to me. They don't want me to approach judgment having never warned me, having never utilized the methodology that the Bible has given to try to appreciate my need to come back. But the fact remains, it is my choice. It is my decision so that every one of us shall give account of himself to God in the words of Romans 14, 12. Today, as we've reminded ourselves about the biblical subject of apostasy and the last resort, among other things, it's reminded us apostasy can happen. That's why we need to be watchful, always alert, and vigilant with regard to our own standing with the Lord. And with regard to those who are, then not right with the Lord. As a wayward child of God, we've learned today that in the words of Second Peter 2, verses 18 to 22, it's a sad state to be in. In many ways, it's worse than sad. It's worse than simply being lost because the latter end is with them worse than the beginning. For all those reasons, we've learned then that those processes whereby we approach the person in love privately and then publicly urging repentance and urging that they have then a tender heart of response to the things that Jesus has taught. Today, if we think about these matters with care and realize that we're subjects to them, and we realize the need to give careful thought to them, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a song of encouragement. It's a song that certainly is a convenient time for the congregation here at Pippin, 
But realize the Lord's invitation is always open. It isn't restricted to a couple of moments on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. But if at this moment we're motivated to consider the things we've learned today, to think about the nature of their teaching and the placement of your soul and mine in life, if anyone would wish to make that response to this gospel invitation, we would welcome you to come while together we stand and sing.